There we go. Okay, we're so glad that you're here tonight, and we're glad for those who are beginning to join us um, through the internet, and we have a, I think, a great passage to look at. You might just go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Revelation 14. You know, God loves his church, um, and this is a time when the church of God is suffering in a very terrible way. And you hear that as I talk to other pastors and other people. The pandemic that we find ourselves in, it spreads, of course, when people get together. There's no question about that. And getting together is just what the church lives from. So it makes it very difficult. We're called, actually, to get together, to worship. Uh, All of the biblical analogies that God uses for his church really all emphasize um, what the church is together. We're the body of Christ, bound together like the different parts of a physical body, or we're the family living and serving together, celebrating together, suffering together, growing together. We're a holy priesthood, a group of people who together serve God's people and worship together. We're the temple of God, built uh, out of living stones into a building. Let me just ask you, what sort of body has parts that are separated from each other that can't really get together? What kind of family can't meet together? What kind of priesthood can't worship and serve together? Have you ever known a building built out of stones that don't touch? Not likely. In fact, the very word church, ecclesia, it means the gathering of the saints, of those who follow Jesus. When we aren't together, not only do we lose touch with each other, but we tend to lag in our spiritual growth. Recently, an epidemiologist shared this week, I heard this, the four places where the virus has proven to be especially contagious and dangerous. Number one was bars. Don't have to worry about that. Number two was mass meetings of all kinds. It doesn't matter what it is. Number three was church gatherings, which is logical in every way from a biological standpoint, understandable. But from a spiritual standpoint, that's hard to hear. The book of Revelation is written to a church in the severest form of persecution. No doubt Christians in much of the Roman world at that time feared getting together too. It could mean arrest, it could mean even death. And the church today, luckily, is not facing that sort of persecution, thank goodness. The orders limiting the number of people who gather during this pandemic are, pandemic are being given by, have been given by those who uh, have been entrusted with the responsibility of protecting the common health and well-being of all Americans. And I appreciate what Chris put on line last week just explaining that, we should have nothing but respect for the difficult task that they have, and we should be grateful for the medical knowledge and the good sense that God has given us that allows us to protect ourselves from something like that. But still, it is a very difficult time for God's church. Today, I talked with a leader uh, from a church in another church in Blunt County, and Um, She was suffering like 
others who are trying to serve in such a weird situation. And she voiced a fear that I too have had. And she said this, and if this pandemic continues until this time next year, which may many medical experts believe will be the case, what will be left of my church? Who will come to the first worship service that we have after the pandemic? Another way of stating that is how many will remain faithful? The book of Revelation is full of warnings about falling away. It encourages God's people to remain faithful in the hardest of times. And it's a good word for us tonight. It challenges us as we face, as a people of God, a pandemic that is damaging the church in many ways. So tonight we want to look at Revelation 14, uh, verses 1 through 13. And let me just hasten to say, and I say this unashamedly, I am not a Revelation expert, so you can ask lots of questions that I couldn't answer, that I would have to research. But this passage is quite uh, helpful, and I have spent a lot of time looking into it. As in all of the book of Revelation, it's filled with representation and symbol, uh, symbolism, and you have to think about what those mean, and people are not always of the same opinion. But the gist will be very clear to us, and I think very helpful. So we're just going to look at this uh, verse by verse, but I think it might be helpful just to hear the whole thing together before we look at the verses individually. So I'm going to read, starting at verse 1, read the first 13 verses. And I saw the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him were 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of a mighty ocean or the rolling of loud thunder. It was like the sound of many harpists playing all together. This great choir sang a wonderful new song in front of the throne of God and before the four living beings and the 24 elders. No one could learn this song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. They have kept themselves as pure as virgins, following the Lamb wherever He goes. They have been purchased from among the people on the earth as a special offering to God and to the Lamb. They have told no lies. They are without blame. And I saw another angel flying through the sky, carrying the eternal good news to proclaim to the people who belong to this world, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. Fear God, he shouted. Give glory to him, for the time has come when he will sit as judge. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all the springs of water. Then another angel followed him through the sky, shouting, Babylon is fallen. The great city is fallen because she made all the nations of the world drink the wine of her passionate immorality. Then a third angel followed them, shouting, Anyone who worships the beast and his statue or who accepts his mark on the forehead or on the hand must drink the wine of God's anger. Lost my place. 
It has been poured full strength into God's cup of wrath. And they will be tormented with fire and burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angel and the Lamb. The smoke of their torment will rise from forever and ever, and they will have no relief day or night, for they have worshipped the beast and his statue and have accepted the mark of his name. This means that God's holy people must endure persecution patiently, obeying his commands and maintaining their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this down. Blessed are those who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they are blessed indeed, for they will rest from their hard work, for their good deeds will follow them. Let me lead us in a prayer. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that in every situation you love your church and you are with us, you are present with us, amongst us. Lord, we thank you that um, we can depend on your loving hand to direct the future of your church. We pray that your word would be at the heart of our lives, the heart of our message. Let it be the heart of our discussion tonight. Pray that you would encourage us and fill us with the hope that we have in Christ because that is all that counts and that is actually the only hope we have. Lord, we thank you for loving us and pray that you would just be with us as we study. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's just look at it verse for verse. Verse 1 says, Then I saw the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him were 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. So the number 144,000 have already been mentioned in chapter 7. They represent the church, and the number is reached if you multiply 12 times 12 times 1,000. Now, uh, of course, uh, 12 is the number of the tribes of Israel, and there would be lots to talk about that. I really don't want to get into that, and there's great disagreement <laughs> about the 144,000 and exactly, you know, uh, this and that. I think that that is really not the intent of the picture, but I think the intent is is to show that it's this massive number of people who have come to follow Christ. And they are standing with the Lamb on Mount Zion, and he is about to pass judgment on the peoples of the earth. Um, so he talks about the mark that they have on their foreheads. They have the mark of the Lamb and of his Father, so of Jesus and of God. And a mark, um, it can actually mean a number of different things and did in ancient times. It was used in different ways. Um, you know, mark is, you might think of a tattoo or a brand um, that was uh, put on people and animals and so forth. So the mark, the insignia, it could have, uh, it, it was for one, used to show ownership. So slaves, of course, were branded with an owner's mark. Now that is unbearable for us to think about, but that was common um, practice then. Those who stand with the Lamb are the children of God, and they are his special possession. They belong to him, and you are very aware that starting early in the Old Testament, God called his people from, from, the, from Mount Sinai on, he called them what? His special possession. 
uh, a mark was also something that stood for loyalty. So in ancient times, a soldier, you know, you, um, if you know anything about Roman history, you know that, you know, the generals, they were very powerful men. And they vied within the, uh, within the, the kingdom itself, with the em- empire, for position. And often they fought each other. Uh, it's kind of hard for us to imagine, but the Roman soldiers, they had this special loyalty not just to the empire and not just to Caesar, but to that general that they followed. And it was very common practice for a soldier to be branded on their hand with the mark of their general as a sign of their unquestionable loyalty. So those who stand with the Lamb on Mount Zion are those who have endured, who have remained faithful all the way through the persecution, through everything that came. It also could stand for security. Uh, it was A person was also marked occasionally for uh, reasons of security. Now that seems a little strange to us, and we don't exactly understand how that worked, but we know that, for example, we have a third century letter from a son to his father who was away during war. And he says to his father, I wish that we had stamped the mark upon you to keep you safe. There was some thought it could have been just so he could be identified if he were killed. It could have been that it uh, placed him under some, in their mind, some form of security. In any way, it was a common practice. Uh, and we know that those who belong to the Lamb, they are safe. They are safe because they are marked with his name. They're safe in life, and they are safe in death. So that mark is a very important thing. On that mark, we're talking about, I, I can't remember now if I read it or I listened to somebody about it, but they talked. Perfect number is seven. Perfect number is seven. I wonder if that could be forward. Well, James, James, just for those listening online, asked if that mark could be 777, which is maybe the perfect number or mark. I have no idea. I've not really ever heard that. Uh, I would really say, in this case, it says his name and the name of his father. So... I would rather think uh, that was intended some symbol that represented Jesus and Father. You know, we have symbols, the dove represents the Holy Spirit or whatever. Um, that's what I would think, but I'm like I said at the beginning, I'm not really an expert there. Okay, verse 2, And I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of a mighty ocean, waves of the roll, uh, or the rolling of loud thunder. It was like the sound of many harpists playing together. So really three pictures that he gives here of the sound that he heard. Um, Often the roar of uh, water was a a sign of power. It was a a symbol for power. And I don't know if you've ever experienced this. We went a couple of times in uh, Switzerland to a place called Trumabachfelle. And it really is a river that comes from melting a melting glacier. 
And over the, the thousands of years, it has cut. It has cut through this solid granite mountain. Beats anything you've ever seen. And it's, it's enormous. And the, the cavern at places is, wide, is as wide as this room. But, I mean, the river itself would be, I don't know, 50 feet across or something. And it's coming from the top of the mountain, cutting through as it goes down. And they have, as a tourist attraction, they've built a, a, a ramp or a, a, a walkway on just into the side of that granite wall. You're just hanging out. And, and you cannot hear yourself think. And, and you are overcome by the power of that water and what that water has done over the centuries. You know, when, when he says it's like the sound of many waters, he's talking about the power of God's voice. And he, you know, uh, likens it to thunder, you know, an unmistakable sign of presence and power. Um, you know, if we've, I'm sure you've been in some horrendous thunderstorm. You know, it's not just not something you can miss. And then he says the harpist, and you know, that's kind of, you know, we can get thunder and a waterfall, that sort of, you know, that sort of seems the same, but what about the mini harpists? Because that wouldn't be the same kind of thing. And I think that, that he's just showing that in, in this experience, when he hears from heaven the roar, it is the power, but it's not just power. It's also the beautiful melody and presence of God that is calm in the trouble. So if you're in persecution like the church was at that time, in terrible persecution, you needed two things. You needed the power and presence of God, but you also needed his, his love. He needed, you needed somebody to put your arm around you when you're on the way to being crucified or killed in some other way. And uh, I think that that is what that symbolizes. And then he says this great choir sang a wonderful new song in front of the throne of God and before the living beings and the 24 elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. Now, you know, the children of God are singing this song because only they could learn it. So that means, uh, I guess, those who would hear it who did not belong to Christ, they would not be able to learn the new song that the choir was singing. You know, um, I think what he's saying here, the symbol is that... Um, in our faithfulness to Christ, even in the hardest of times, uh, he teaches us we are able to learn and to grow in our faith. Now, you know, if you ask, uh, why is that? Well, for one, it's because they had suffered together. Um, I don't know if you've had this experience, but anytime you go through a common suffering with somebody else, there's a bond there that uh, unites you. Uh, the church was going through a terrible time, a frightful time. 
and it did end up binding them together. And also they had lived uh, faithfully, loyally, during a, a time of turmoil and danger. What happens between a leader and his followers? Well, I mean, they are bound together. If you look at the, some of the movies like, I, I, come, you know, I think of Braveheart or something like that, you know, a terrible time for a people, but a specific bond grew between Braveheart, this guy who was leading the Scottish people in an unsuccessful revolt against their oppressors. Um, I think that in the case of Christ, he is leading us and leading his people through times of turmoil. It ends in, in a bond that you do not have otherwise. Personally, I think one of the great weaknesses of the modern Western church is the fact that we've never suffered anything for our faith. We've never had to give up anything much. And uh, so often I think that it's taken for granted. There is a bond that's missing. And then the company of the Lamb had made uh, steady progress in spiritual growth. I think that <coughs> I think that our our lives in times of suffering, they often, it often leads to a deeper faith. And I think all of those things, it made it possible for them to learn the song and sing the song where others could not. Uh, they had been faithful, they had suffered, and they had grown in their faith. Now, I don't know if you've ever had an experience like that, um, certainly we all have gone through difficult times that have resulted in our growing in our faith. Why is that? Because we have to depend on him and depend on his word in a way that we don't if everything's hunky-dory all the time. That's not to say that, uh, that I want that sort of thing. I don't really want that at all. But um, I do think that God works through that. And then verses 4 and 5, they have kept themselves as pure as virgins, following the Lamb wherever he goes. They have been purchased from among the people on the earth as a special offering to God and to the Lamb. They have told no lies. They are without blame. He's talking about the 144,000, the people who belong to Christ. So he says they are as pure as virgins. Now, this is, um, I don't know, maybe somebody read that in a different translation. You have that in a different translation? It's verse 4. Okay, so, yeah. So they did not devile, defile themselves with women. They remained virgins. So um, the way it's worded uh, is is one of the most difficult passages in Revelation and one of the most controversial as far as how over the, over the years it's been understood. Um, it was actually one of the verses that was, uh, was very important in the founding of the convents and monasteries. Uh, people who remained single, remained undefiled, but... What is the problem with that? 
It's really contrary to what the scriptures hold teaches. You know, as though you would look at marriage as something that is defiling. What did Jesus say? He said, God created marriage and he put man and woman together and blessed that and made them one, one being. Paul says, of course, the same thing. He gives the highest honor to marriage when he compares it to what? To our relationship to Christ, to the church's relationship to Christ. And what does the book of Revelation itself call the church? The bride of Christ. So I don't think that you could ever say that, and this translation doesn't doesn't even imply that. It says what I think it really means, and they have kept themselves as pure as virgins. I think that is indeed the meaning. Um, So in the book of Revelation, of course, the worship of idols or the beast was what? It was called prostitution. Do you remember that? Uh, Also, was a common Old Testament analogy uh, of those who chased after other gods. Uh, God would say they have prostituted themselves. They have chased after other gods and worshiped them. With that in mind, virginity is a picture of those who've kept themselves pure from idol worship. Here are those who remain faithful to Christ and do not fall away in spite of the beast, in spite of the Antichrist and what he is doing. Okay, so he says these things about the 144,000 who stand with the Lamb. He says, first of all, They follow the lamb wherever he goes. Follow him wherever he goes. The simplest definition of a Christian is what? One who follows Christ. Uh, The word Christian itself means little Christ. One who imitates Christ. A copy, a duplicate. But don't you wish that described us? A duplicate of Jesus. When Jesus called his disciples, what did he say? One thing he said, follow me. He said, leave everything else and follow me. Those who follow Christ are those who will stand at his side at the judgment. And that's very important for us to remember. Now, I think that, and I had a long discussion with Stephen this afternoon about this, but I think that we have in so many ways gotten off track there. And we have stopped following Jesus and said, really, what's important is, you know, instead of a lifetime of following away, our whole idea of following Christ is a few feet of aisle and having a bath. Now, that sounds a little critical, but I do think that that is often the the thought of many people who do not follow Jesus at all. Um, and it would be very important to look at what this text says for anybody who is not following but just has had some sort of experience. Secondly, he says they were bought from all the men of the earth. They are the chosen ones. You know, not one of us is going to be at Jesus' side at the judgment because we deserve it and not because of anything we did to earn it. Uh, If we are there, then it is because Jesus purchased us. He paid uh, a heavy price to free us. And we need to keep that utmost in our minds all the time. 
And it says they were the special offering. So the actual word that's used here is the word first fruit. So if you remember, the first fruit, fruit, first fruit was not just the first, but it was the best. It was the best of what the farmer had to bring. If he was uh, a farmer who raised wheat, then the first fruit was that very best first harvest, and it belonged to God, uh, no matter what it was. It was without blemish. Okay, So uh, the Christian is to be the best that can be offered to God. So you might, we might say something like the cream of the crop. <laughs> Every Christian is to be the best that he can be because that is our offering to God. What does Paul say in Romans 12? He says, you are living sacrifices. In other words, your life is the first fruit that you bring to God in your commitment and dedication to him. And Christians are the men and women who have consecrated their lives to Jesus. And that's who is there at that time. And then he says, they have told no lies. Oh, that makes me a little anxious. <laughs> because, um, you know, we certainly are not always completely truthful. You know, truth is... Um, it is something that is very important to God. Uh, let me just read a couple of Old Testament passages. Psalm 33, 32, 2 says, Yes, what joy for those who record the Lord has cleared uh, of guilt, whose record, oh my goodness, whose record the Lord has cleared of guilt, whose lives are lived in complete honesty. Whose lives are lived in complete honesty. And Isaiah says in 53.9, Yes, what joy for those who, whose uh, record the Lord has cleared from... Oh, I'm sorry, I did the same verse. Yeah, I must have copied that from the... I didn't erase the other, so I don't have Isaiah 53.9. But let me just ask you, what, what uh, value does honesty have in our society today? I'm afraid not much. Uh, rare. It's rare. <laughs> okay, so Isaiah 53 9 says, He has done no wrong, and he had done no wrong, oh yeah, and had never deceived anyone, but he was buried like a criminal. Criminal, He was put in a rich man's grave. So, so what is that about? It's about Christ. He, he was never dishonest. He was completely honest. And that is something that we certainly should strive for. And, and it is one of the things that uh, John mentions in the book of Revelation of those who will stand at Christ's side at the judgment seat. They were honest. The words they spoke were truth. And um, sometimes I think we, we, get, we, we wonder, you know, actually the question is sometimes um, put out there. Is, is there real truth? But, but there is truth. And obviously there are things that we can be uncertain about, you know, that are so-called gray areas. Not everything is black and white. And I wish it were, but it's not. But there is truth and there is falsehood. And he says they are without blame. 
Um, it's the same word that we often say, blemish. Uh, that applies to what? It's a sacrificial word, and it describes the animal that has no flaw, and thus it uh, is fit to be a sacrifice for the Lord. And, of course, he's talking about the lives of those who are standing there at the judgment with Jesus. Now, I think there are two things that we need to remember there. Um, are, are you going to be without blemish? Can, can you say that your life is without blemish? I certainly cannot. But we are made pure through the blood of Christ. We are made um, to be worthy of a sacrifice to Christ. Um, but at the same time, we're to seek those virtues of honesty and blamelessness in our lives as we go along. And um, the 144,000 are people who belong to the Lamb, who've been forgiven, but have been changed. And I think that is the, the key. Okay, look at verses 6 and 7. And I saw another angel flying through the sky, carrying the eternal good news to proclaim to the people who belong to this world, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. Fear God, he shouted. Give glory to him, for the time has come when he will sit as judge. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all the springs of water. So, the first angel, there are three angels that we'll look at. The first uh, flies through the sky and he proclaims the good news, the gospel. So, it is the eternal gospel. Now, um, you know, we, we know in this scene the world is coming to an end. The time is near. But the gospel will not end. It is eternal. The good news of what God did in Christ will never stop being proclaimed. We are going to proclaim that forever. We're going to sing that new song that no one else can learn. Um, eternal also has the meaning, of course, that it was preexistent. That is, the good news of God was always. The gospel is also eternal in that it is the fulfillment of God's eternal purpose. Um, you remember on the cross, Jesus said at the end of his life, as just before he breathed his last, what did he say? It is finished, right? And he used a word that doesn't mean it's over, but he mean, it means it is fulfilled, it is completed, it is accomplished. And, and that's what he's talking about. The eternal purpose of God is accomplished in Christ. And that gospel will be proclaimed forever. And it will be proclaimed to every nation, tribe, language, and people. Now, you remember at the Great Commission, where were the disciples sent? Everywhere, right? They were sent over, starting at home, but going throughout the world. Now, if you've ever seen the statistics, there are, I wish I had looked them up, but there are hundreds and hundreds of languages in which the Bible has not yet been translated. There are people everywhere that really have never heard the name of Jesus. That's hard for us to imagine, but it is true. Um, I, I have met one person 
we had a, a Chinese home group in, uh, when we were in Germany because at the university in Weimar there were a lot of Chinese students studying architecture. And um, we had several who came to faith. And this one uh, guy that um, came to faith, we were talking one day, and, uh, or actually right before his baptism, and uh, I was just asking him about his hometown, and I asked him you know, where it was, and he said, well, I mean, he said, it's just a little place, only two million people, and so you would never have heard of it, you know, and true, true enough, I'd never heard of it. It was not far from the Korean border. But I asked him, just, um, it just occurred to me, I said, what did you know about Jesus before you came to Germany? He said, I'd never heard the name of Jesus. I had absolutely no idea, none whatsoever. And at the university, he met some other Chinese believers, and that's just hard to imagine, isn't it? But around the world, there are places. But this tells us that the gospel is going to be fulfilled. What Jesus told the disciples to do, that will be accomplished uh, at the end of time. And he calls us to worship the creator. This is the call to turn from the worthless things of this world and place our focus on the creator of everything uh, to worship him. And, you know, because that is what God calls us to do as a people of God. It is one of the things that is so difficult in a time like now because we can't meet to worship as we would normally do. But let me just remind you that worship is not, although corporate worship it is what we're called to do, and that's what he's talking about here, joining together the voices of all of those who belong to Christ. But worship is, do you remember what we talked about a hundred times? That word means worth-ship. That is, that which I value. It is proclaiming that which I value. And I can still do that, even if I can't shake hands with the family of God. Um, I can still proclaim his value in many, many ways. And so it's not like we can't worship, but that aspect of worship, the corporate worship, that is so emphasized in Scripture, it is hard for the church when we can't do that. Uh, this is not, by the way, the first time. Not only other pandemics, but in times of persecution, there were many times when the church could not meet, uh, sporadically, secretly at best. And then the angel who speak, he speaks a warning, also speaks a warning, for the time has come when he will sit as judge. This is prophecy, of course, but it is a warning that God will judge us all. Um, you know, our, our chances are not infinite. There will be a time when we'll be called to reckon. And then look at verses uh, 8, at verse 8. Then another angel followed him through the sky, shouting, Babylon is fallen, the great city is fallen, because she made all the nations of the world drink the wine of her passionate immorality. Wow. So um, a reference to Babylon, of course, to the ancient Babylonian empire, 
in Mesopotamia, was one of the great political and religious centers of antiquity, and it was noted for its, its luxury and absolute moral corruption. Absolute. In Revelation, Babylon the Great is taken from Daniel, and it's been interpreted in different ways, most often to represent the Roman Empire, specifically the city of Rome, as the center of resistance to God and his kingdom. And that was what was going on at the time the uh, Revelation was written. Uh, Rome was increasing the persecution. You remember John was a very old man, and um, the church was just uh, coming under the uh, Nero, the persecutions of Nero, which were the most severe. Um, but if you remember, we've said that prophecy is often like an onion. And when you peel an onion, it has different layers, right? You peel away one layer, and then there's another layer. And actually, it looks just the same. You peel that away, and you've got another layer. It looks just the same. Right? I love onions. But um, prophecy is like that just because it applies to Rome in that era that doesn't mean it doesn't apply to us in a different way that is similar, and I think that is true. Uh, I think it is also right to say that the Babylon uh, is the whole political, religious, economic system of the world which comes under the rule of the Antichrist at some point. Um, and then uh, some believe that actually Babylon will be rebuilt and restored. That is, that that city or that empire will, at some point in history, come back to its uh, prevalence as a part of the end times. Now, I don't know. Uh, I, I kind of doubt that, but you know what? <laughs> there have been a lot of things that have happened since last year that I would have said, oh, no, that's not going to happen. I don't know what God will do, but I do know that that symbol of Babylon is a symbol of passionate immorality. Uh, the Antichrist will lead people and the world, all of those who he can, to abandon God in every way. And so certainly in many ways we see that today. We see that happening in our society. And it's not new, but, um, but it is at any rate present uh, it says that her immorality is compared to drunkenness. Now, what, what would that mean? Well, the idea that is that Babylon had been had a, a, a corrupting force which had really lured the nations into a kind of insane immorality. The background is the picture of a prostitute persuading a man into immorality by filling him with wine so that he can no more resist her lure. That's the picture. And Rome was like that. It was like some glittering prostitute seducing the world, the most immoral, imaginable place. So she's completely under the control of her immoral lusts, whatever they may be, like a drunk is under the influence of alcohol and cannot be, you know, know what he is doing. You know, we see, and I'm not saying, uh, I, well, I'm not really, I just, I think that we see that kind of thing in our society today, and uh, we have a responsibility to 
to stand against that, and the church has to stand against that. If you look at just the moral situation of our, our country, it's, it's devastating, it's frightening. Um, what is happening to marriage? What about abortion? What about the treatment of the poor? Um, it is appalling, the immorality in our world today on, at, at every level. And it's also a little scary. It is just a little scary. Now, what is that actually? Actually, that is a form of idolatry because it uses other people to my own, you know, uh, desires. It's a kind of idolatry. Jeremiah said this, Babylon has been a gold cup in the Lord's hands, a cup that made the whole earth drunk. The nations drank Babylon's wine and it drove them all mad. <laughs> that's, that's quite telling, isn't it? You know, a paraphrase might be something like this. Babylon made the nations drink of the wine which seduces men and women to fornication and whose influence is evil will not escape the avenging wrath of God. And there will be judgment. And that is part of what the book of Revelation is warning us about. Uh, there will be judgment. Now the angel is crying what? And this is good news for us. Babylon has fallen. This is the announcement of the angel. And the nations uh, who followed Babylon, they will not escape. Uh, there will be judgment. But Babylon will fall. And, and that is wonderful news for the 144,000, for those who belong to Christ. Okay, look at verse 9, the third angel. Then a third angel followed them, shouting, Anyone who worships the beast and his statue or who accepts his mark on the forehead or on the hand must drink the wine of God's anger. It has been poured full strength into God's cup of wrath and they will be tormented with fire and burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the Lamb. The smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever and they will have no relief day or night for they have worshipped the beast and his statue and have accepted the mark of his name. This means that God's holy people must endure persecution patiently, obeying his commands and maintaining their faith in Jesus. So this third angel announces the punishment that awaits those who followed the beast. Now, this is the fate of anyone who denies the Lord, who abandons him. One thing we have to remember about Revelation is that it is written to what? To the churches. It was written to the churches. And it is a reminder to remain faithful in persecution. Of course, it is a reminder of God's triumph and our eventual blessing, but only if we do not bow to the beast. Only if we do not cave in to the world uh, and his wiles. So what does it mean to worship the beast in his statue and to accept the mark of the beast on our forehead or hand? Well, it's a picture of those who fall back into the ways of the world when faced with persecution and temptation, who abandon their faith and, uh, and instead 
say, I'm living for the world and forget, forget for Christ. But the cup of seduction will result in a cup of wrath. That is, Babylon seduces, um, but the result of one who abandons Christ is, of course, God's wrath. So the church was battling at this time for its very existence. Uh, if it was to continue, individual Christians had to be prepared to face suffering and trial, imprisonment and death. And that happened too. If the individual Christian yielded, the church died. In our day, individual Christians are still of prime importance, but their function now is not usually to protect the faith by being ready to die for it. How many of you have been put on the firing squad line and said, you know, either you you abandon Christ or you get shot. None of us, we haven't experienced that. But it is our responsibility to commend it by being diligently to live it, to live for the Christ to whom we belong. So he says, then in the presence of the holy angels and the Lamb, that is, um, that this the punishment that falls on those who have abandoned the faith, their punishment takes place in the presence of the holy angels and the Lamb. So, you know, you've got to think about that. Um, what, does, what does that do to you? You know, we don't, we don't really like that, do we? We don't like hearing that. Um, it seems strange to us, but we need to remember that in Old Testament thought, a part of blessedness of heaven was to see the suffering of sinners in hell. What is great, the best example of that from Jesus? Do you remember? What about Lazarus and the rich man? <laughs> um, was Lazarus aware of the suffering of the rich man in the next life? Yeah, of course he was. Of course he was. There was a portal, and he could see from heaven what was happening. Um, that's hard for us to imagine, but uh, it is exactly what is said here. The judgment of the unrighteous will be carried out in the presence of the righteous. Now, uh, then again, we, you know, we've... We haven't gone through the same sufferings that the early Christians did. Uh, you know, there the Roman crowds had looked down from the seats of the arena on their suffering and death by the thousands, thousands and thousands. The early Christians were sustained by the thought, and this is the point, that someday the divine justice of heaven would adjust the balance of earth's injustice. That is, Christians who were experiencing horrendous injustice. They had the promise of God's word that justice would prevail. And it may not be in this lifetime, but it would be. And that is a good thing. So look at verse 12 again. This means, what does it mean? It means that God's holy people must endure persecution patiently. Now, like we said, we don't, um, 
We're not facing persecution. No one is standing at our door threatening to lock us up if we proclaim Christ. It's the opposite. We are free to do that. Thank God we are. But you know, we do have to face trials patiently. And I think that what we're going through now as a church is one of those trials. I would not say that it's from God, but I think it is something that God will use to refine his church. I do believe that. Um, and one of our responsibilities is to endure. It is to remain faithful. And then he says, and to obey his commands. You know, um, in a time of persecution, of course, there were many Christians who abandoned their faith because they feared persecution, but the way that would be abandoned would be simply to um, ignore God's commands, to live the way I wanted to live. You know, we have lots of, um, lots of um, ancient writings among, you know, the civilizations, the Roman world. There's thousands and thousands of letters. And you may be aware that we have a letter that was written to a governor in somewhere in uh, Turkey or in Asia Minor. I don't remember exactly the place. But he was confused. It was the beginning of the persecutions, and, and he wanted to know he had written to Rome. We don't have that letter. We just have the answer. But he had obviously written, and he said, so if, if a guy is accused of being a Christian, how can I know whether he really is or not? It might be that a baker is accused by another baker of being a Christian because he wants to get rid of the competition because Christians were being murdered. And um, the answer from Rome is this. It says, well, you just need to ask him because Christians are so stupid that they will say they won't abandon this guy, Christ. They will, you know, they will tell you if they belong to him. You know, if you think about that, that is a wonderful testimony, isn't it? Christians are going to remain faithful. You know, that's really true, isn't it? And those who abandon their faith, are they Christians? Hard to follow there. And then he says, we will remain faithful, obeying the commands and maintaining their faith in Jesus. And, you know, I think that this is one of the things that is a genuine challenge for us today because it is not easy to maintain your faith when you not, are not regularly with God's people. One of the things that is so important about being a part of the family of God is we encourage each other, we hold each other accountable um, and that is so incredibly important. Uh, a little while ago, a month ago, I talked to a young man who is a member of our church but had not been seen in a while. Of course, with COVID, you hardly, everything is kind of on its head. But even before that, he'd not been a part of worship in some time. 
And I asked him, I said, well, just tell me. I said, you know, have you ever felt God's presence in your life? Have you felt that you were close to him? And he thought for a minute. And he said, yes. He said, you know, after my baptism, I was was here all the time. And I felt God's presence in my life. And I said, well, what happened? He thought a minute and he said, I quit coming and I got in with a different crowd. You know, we need each other. And in this weird and difficult time, we need to remember that. And we need to be diligent in making contact to God's family that we can't see now all the time. Uh, No one needs to escape our attention. And then verse 13 says, And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this down. Blessed are those who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they are blessed indeed, for they will rest from their hard work, for their good deeds follow them. Blessed are those who remain faithful unto death. It is harder to remain faithful during persecution or in a world like ours today. What makes faithfulness so difficult today? Well, we don't have that support that we need from each other. But he encourages us here to remain faithful in spite of it. And then he says, their good deeds will follow them. Now, that is not salvation by works, obviously. But as we have just recently talked about, it is the reward that is promised those who belong to Jesus and remain faithful to him in difficult times. And I pray that we will be found faithful as a church. That is my prayer. Okay. You're listening to Cleveland First Baptist Church's Wednesday night adult Bible study audio. For more information on Cleveland First Baptist Church, please visit clevelandfirstbaptistchurch.com.